Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Making Marketing. I'm calling today's episode Deep in the Weeds with Susan Schierkofer, Chief Digital Investment Officer at WPP's Group M. Susan runs digital investments at the world's largest media agency in a crucial trading role that she says is designed to work on behalf of brands to make sure that they're getting access to quality digital media. Susan and I discuss whether brand safety is really just a mirage and if what brands are worried about are actually screenshots and whether the original sin of the agency world was unbundling media and creative. Susan, welcome to Making Marketing. Hi, Shireen. Nice to be here. We're excited to have you. So, and you've had sort of like a long career in digital media, and I always find that interesting because digital media itself has changed so much. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've been curious about is, you know, you were, you basically worked on the digital media, founding the digital media practice at Ogilvy, which then became Neo, um, and that was in the 90s. What what surprised you about what's changed and how the digital media ecosystem has shifted? I, I think the biggest change for digital has been the move away from IO-based media to programmatic. That is probably the place that we need to do the most work for our clients in terms of education, in terms of activation, in terms of whether it's auction, whether it's floor pricing, um, whether it's just a programmatic activation of a partner that we work with every day. And we really need to understand what is the right way to activate for that particular campaign, for that particular client. Mm-hmm. When we were starting a digital practice within Ogilvy, it was still a lot of the same principles in terms of what is the editorial content. And it was, it was definitely learning new technology because the creative was really so much different. Mm-hmm. But, but the same principles applied, working very closely together with creative because Ogilvy used to have creative and media together. Mm-hmm. And you know, we would definitely approach it as one team where we would look at what's a really unique creative activation. And we still do that, but because, but because we're not part of the creative agencies anymore, it's more of an effort to do that versus walking into each other's office. Mm-hmm. But, but truly leveraging creative application to the various activations is still critically important to us. Do you think kind of that sort of unbundling of creative media, creative and media that happened, um, and in some cases sort of like going back to working, working as one, do you think that was a huge mistake? I, at the time, because I had stayed within Ogilvy, um, the other media had left first. Mm -hmm. So the digital was last man standing. And we couldn't make sense of any of it. And I had stayed at Ogilvy, and it soon became uh, Neo at Ogilvy. There was an interim in the middle where it was was called M1, which was an offering that was half owned by Ogilvy and half owned by Mindshare. Um, That didn't last too long. And um, I had gone back to Ogilvy, which then became Neo at Ogilvy. But I will tell you, having worked on both sides of it, that I understand the reason that all the media is together. And that is really the scale and activating for our clients to make sure that we're driving and delivering on communication goals. Mm -hmm. In a perfect world, you're doing both. And I think for some of our clients who it's important to them that we bring back in the creative, because when when we're briefed, an ideal scenario would be that we're briefed at the same time as creative. 
It doesn't happen as often as it should. Ah, in a perfect world. But it does. But it used to happen all the time. So if you could if you could keep the integrity of what does a briefing process look like, who are all the important people, and the important people are lots of different people. It's not just digital and creative. It is analytics. What's the KPIs? Let's build this from the beginning as a team. Let's activate as a team. Let's come back and say what worked and didn't work as a team. That is the best way to activate. But you do also need the scale of the other clients working with the other publishers to make sure that you're getting the right pricing, you're getting the right first looks, you're getting the right content activations. And that can't happen really if you're sort of just keeping creative and media together and not really thinking about media and creative as separate entities? If I think it's a scale issue, okay. right? So if let's say there was a big, beautiful agency that was built with all the creative services and, and back to all the media together, and you still were able to keep that scale together with creative, I think that's that would be a place lots of people would probably want to work. <laughs> so again, back to the ideal world. So one thing has been that, you know, we are seeing, you just mentioned kind of all of these names that I'm sure a lot of people listening, kind of some of them remember, some of them are too young to remember, but M1 and all of these different kind of iterations and um, combinations of agency entities that has gone on over the years. And I think we're sort of at an interesting point in the agency holding company and how these companies work together story. And we are starting to see a lot more let's bring things under one roof. Let's really go back to what this idea of that scale and having one place to do it. You're seeing it across all the holding companies in different ways. What is Group M's point of view sort of bringing that together and why it's happening and where do you think it sort of goes from here? Well, that, that is the beauty of working within WPP because we do have creative agencies. We have the media agencies. We have discrete analytic companies. We have a company like Wonderman that brings in data, creative, as well as media activation. And it gets back to the client activation because if we have a client that does run across creative and media, that's best case scenario for us because then we can activate all the parts of WPP that make sense. But in many cases, because we're so much in a pitch business and the clients have separated out creative and media for many of their brands, that's really the challenge, is how do you make sure that you're keeping the best of all your principles mm -hmm. when you're working with many different companies that live under different holding companies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you just mentioned pitching, so we should talk about pitching. Um, how? Tell me a little bit about sort of like the pitch process as it's working right now. I think the way sort of that clients have picked agencies over years um there's different models of doing it different ways of doing it but a lot of the issues that have come down to is the agency model in trouble or is there things going wrong have come down to the way pitches have traditionally been run um how do you think the pitch process kind of works and how do you think it, sh it should be run i almost think that at the very beginning there should be a conversation with the auditors with the client and with the agency together in the room about the template. Mm -hmm. Because we see many different types of templates. And when we'll, I'll give an example. You know, for many years, for many clients, we've traded on Group M viewability, which is different than MRC. Vastly different. Right? So we'll say, well, what kind of rates are you looking for? Are you looking for non-viewable or viewable? Viewable. Okay. You understand our Group M definition is stricter 
than the MRC d definition. Mm -hmm. Which rates do you want? Because it does matter how we go to market. Oh, we want yours. We'll trade on yours. Well, we, there could be a premium depending on the property, depending on the execution, because we're only paying for viewable. Do you understand that? Yes, we understand. And then we'll get back the first pass of the template, and there'll be lots of red, because <laughs> they say, you're higher the than the other agencies. It's like, yes, we're higher than the other agencies because our viewability definition is more stringent. So as much as sometimes in the pitch process the clients say that they understand that, or the, the ubiquities of the world right. say that they understand that, it's not apples to apples sure. comparison. So that's why I think kicking off with a discussion, um, or we generally are just moving straight to, to the, other, the other agency's definition for the, pr for the for pitch process. Yeah. Well, but that's actually part of a bigger conversation. That it I think one of the things that's happening, you know, digital media is growing up now. I think there was a point at which people were so excited by the prospect of digital that it was going to solve all the issues. It was going to be really measurable and it was all going to work and there wasn't going to be any fraud and there weren't going to be any issues and viewability wouldn't be a concern. Right. And now people woke up to the reality of it is that it's not perfect. And so people are trying to fix it. But one thing I think that I've heard, and I'm excited about how many people I'm hearing now, especially on the agency side, John Montgomery's spoken about this, um, that quality costs money. Yes, and it clients does. don't seem to... Some clients, of course, do, and everything is, and it depends. But clients don't seem to, as a whole, appreciate or understand that they're going to have to pay more if they want things to be viewable. They're going to have to pay more if they want things to be brand safe. And right. that seems to be like the original, the original lie here that nobody's kind of getting around right. or telling the truth about. Yeah. So we, we definitely have clients that do understand that right. and that want to activate in the most brand safe way. And they do understand that if you limit the inventory, that you do raise the price. So we're very fortunate that we have a group of clients that truly, truly understand that. We have some clients that they care about their environment but they also want a certain price point, a certain number of impressions because it works for their models. Which is also normal. And I think there's different levels of brand safety here too. It is. Although I would, I mean, one thing that I think we as an industry need to do is to, to truly understand what the distribution of impressions is. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when you do a buy, I think some clients think that they're only getting O&Os. But if you want if there's a certain size of a buy and the O&O can't fulfill, then many of the publishers will go off platform and clients really need to see the reports for what does that look like. Mm -hmm. And I think we have done a, a really good job um, and very much working with John Montgomery, with Joe Barone. We have worked with Moat, Double Verify, IAS. Like Group M led the integration of all of the verification partners, all of the technologies, open slate with, with Google Preferred, for example, so that we are able to measure not only viewability, but brand safety mm -hmm. and fraud. We've done that now across all the social platforms, across most of the formats, not all, but we're almost done with our work there. But that was a Group M-led initiative. And you know, part, part of it was because our, our clients cared as much as we did, but I also do think that we've led the industry that way. Mm -hmm. And to your point, what we have found is that there's a lot of places that I don't think our clients want to be, and we need to have that communication with them in terms of the type of environment that they want to be or that they don't want to be. Mm -hmm. 
But I think clients need to know where they are. And I'm not sure how deep teams go in terms of giving them, here's the double verify report. Here is moat. This is what it looks like. This is the distribution. Did you know that 8% of your impressions were blocked and they were blocked because they were going to bad places? Then, you, you know, if, if you have more than one or two points that are going to, to places where the inventory is then blocked, I think the clients really need to say, do I need that as a publishing partner? And I do not think that there's enough scrutiny there. One thing has been, though, that, I mean, it's almost as if CMOs are, at least on the, at least it seems like it, like CMOs and marketers as a whole seem to have gotten more educated, more interested, maybe because they've realized they've had to, but just the last couple mm-hmm. of years about understanding some of these ins and outs. How much of this is about kind of, I mean, people are always talking to me about client education. we got to do more client education. we got to do better client education. How much of the, that is on kind of agencies pushing that envelope and saying, you need to educate yourself. We'll help you do it. Here are the tools to do it. Look at these reports. But how much of that is sort of has to come from the client itself? I think it has to be both. I think it has to be the clients being interested in that information and then the agencies making sure that they're giving that information on a periodic basis. And to say, based on the analysis and where the distribution was, we don't think we should work here, here, and here. We think that we have to carefully scrutinize inventory coming from whether it's programmatic, whether it's an, it's an I.O. buy, where then a publisher went off platform. But it needs to be scrutinized, and it needs optimization. And it can't be a screenshot industrial complex. That just because somebody took a screenshot of an ad next to, in a potentially bad place, and then it became a publicity crisis rather than an actual sort of right. And that's and that's what happens a lot, because the journalists, they like to play that game of gotcha, and it's really easy to find. It is. And what we're trying to do is make sure that it's just not happening at all. But it's how people make money. Yeah. So as, as much as we shut down one part of it, the people who know how to use, right? right. They know how to optimize Basic digital. plumbing of it, they, the ecosystem. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's fascinating, especially, I mean, I have heart for what Google and what Twitter, what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. and Facebook, of course, because it's really hard. It moves all the time, but our responsibility is to make sure that our clients are only appearing in the places that we know that they're going to want to. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an argument that says, well, if you're retargeting and they happen to be on sites that are, we would find mm-hmm. either and violent. That's been an argument brands have used when they've been found. When they've been found, but but it, it's also, it's, it's more than just the message to a particular consumer and what's been found, but it's what, what do you, like what do we all have the responsibility for in terms of monetization. Mm-hmm. Because what where a lot of the fraud exists is in a lot of the fake news. So unless you scrutinize that, unless you make sure that you're nowhere near it, unless you maybe operate on a whitelist versus a blacklist, you're gonna find your way there. Mm-hmm. And our clients don't wanna monetize it. And that's why it's really important because a lot of the editorial that's been damaging is because of its fraud. It's not true journalism. But clients don't know that they're monetizing it. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a newspaper, 
who had called me originally about a client that they thought was ours that was monetizing from Facebook. And when I say from Facebook, it was an extreme political site where if somebody clicked on the article, the screaming headline, it went out to a site, and then it was monetized by content recommendations. First of all, it wasn't ours, thank God. It was a different division that we didn't handle. But when I started going through it, I said, oh, by the way, I see your ad, very reputable news organization. Like, oh. (laughs) So it's an ecosystem that we have to be very, very careful that we know quality impressions versus the places that they're going that we don't want to monetize. How much, what do you think about kind of the, you know, sleeping giants, you know, the Twitter account that's basically turned, for the last, I would say, year and a half, has basically been doing the screenshotting and now has thousands and thousands of brands blacklisting Breitbart and other sites that it says aren't the right places for them and has created almost like a consumer movement into... I mean, I never thought consumers would talk about retargeting, you know, just regular people. Mm -hmm. I never thought people would ever care about retargeting. But suddenly, the business we're in and the plumbing business that you have been a part of for years and places like Digiday have been covering for years, suddenly has become mainstream media. And suddenly everybody wants to know about this. What do you think about the consumer advocacy movement, about doing the screenshots, getting it on Twitter, grab your wallet, all of these things, and the impact that that has on the ecosystem as a whole? Is it making it healthier? I do think, I do think it's making it healthier for the short term, but I just worry about then the new places, that the people who make money on this they just keep going. They just find new places. They find new activations. They find new way to get around the rules. We see it every day. I mean, most of what is being exposed are ways that people found to get around the, the rules, mm-hmm. right? So, so we, we can't stop. And I welcome it because we've been singing this song for years. Again, like we mandated the acceptance of the verification and the brand safety tools for the publishers. It was really hard. They did not want to do it. I'm sure before we came along, everybody was very happy. We did add a whole level of scrutiny to all the impressions. But you also, and you also had the size to be able to do that. We did. We did. And I'm really proud of the work that we did. But sometimes we feel like we're a lone voice out there. So if it takes journalists from very reputable news organizations calling it out so that other clients and other agencies and other holding companies care, I'm for it. Changing tack a little bit. You obviously lead digital investment. Um, I'm curious about sort of your thoughts on Facebook and a lot of kind of what we've seen coming out of especially earnings season, which has been really interesting to me because on one hand, kind of Facebook reporting suddenly fewer users, um, especially in Europe, direct consequence in some cases of GDPR and um, what's happened there. How much... and how much do marketers or clients or brands and you really sort of care about numbers like that when on the whole Facebook is an, still remains an incredibly good investment for a brand's media dollars? Yeah, it's funny because I was speaking to somebody in the industry as well, not at Group M, um, who had said that the other holding companies were paying attention and, her, and were reducing the usage. We, we, we didn't find that. <laughs> we definitely have clients who have had great success with Facebook in terms of building audiences, in terms of generating leads, generating sales, generating brand lift. I mean, I would say Instagram especially 
has been on a huge growth trajectory. And Facebook has said that too, that Instagram mm-hmm. has remained a really big priority for them as they're talking to people as well. Yes. Yes. So I think actually the chatter around stock and potential potential users actually hurt Snap more um, that that we've seen over the past year because of, you know, a couple of celebrities saying they don't use Snap and the earnings weren't good. And then a couple of clients were like, well, we're not really sure that it's still a valuable medium. We do think it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the average age of a Snap user, it's it's that sweet spot, right? It's it's 13 to uh, 31 maybe, 31 being on the on the higher end. But if you want to look at how do you replace places where you're not getting younger audiences, Snap is still, their usage numbers for daily activation is is pretty tremendous. So, so, so if, I'm, if I'm getting this right, it's almost as if Snap's kind of slowing user growth or sort of a different kind of, not a great user growth pattern heard it more when it came to at least just the industry chatter around it. I think it was more the stock, like the the stock stock. not having good earnings and then a couple of celebrities saying, I don't use it anymore. And that got people sort of thinking, is this worth it? Yes. I think that because a lot of clients, it's not their social media of choice. Because they don't happen to be between 13 and 31. Usually. Yes. So usually, usually, you know, here and there. There's always that one. (laughs) But but then that's interesting to me because I think the sort of Facebook, you know, Facebook has had a number of things happen. They've had multiple measurement errors that they've then tried to correct. They've had sort of what happened Cambridge Analytica. They've had, you know, quote unquote scandals. The street barely sort of winked when all of those things happened. And I think marketers barely kind of even looked twice like, oh, OK, that's fine. And actually, arguably, I mean, some of it was actually kind of good news because it showed that the platform actually worked. It might not have worked in the right mm-hmm. way if bad actors were using it. But this most recent earnings report was the first time that I thought, are, do clients care? Do the buyers care suddenly more? Is Facebook suddenly less? Oh, and especially with Instagram's growth, does Instagram then eclipse Facebook itself as a platform? Right. And we're still, yeah, I'm just I mean, the growth is still with both yeah. parts of, of Facebook. This last earnings was, I, I guess, the first time it really made a difference. And it had to do with, the user loss, as well as I think there was the revenue slowdown as well. I don't know. I don't know why this time versus some of the others. And and, and my guess would be more about the user growth. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about another another one, which is Amazon, which I think mm-hmm. I think most people listening to this podcast know that I'm obsessed with as an ad platform. And I think mm-hmm. it's just been fascinating to watch retail media itself grow. Um, where does kind of Amazon go from here? I mean, just everything they're doing in terms of potentially putting video ads and mobile, everything from simplifying, finally simplifying that entire behemoth advertising platform so that buyers kind of are grasping what it is. Um, what comes next for Amazon in terms of an ad as turning into a really big advertising platform? Cause it's still smaller, much smaller. It is, but it's growing. It's growing month and month. We're, we're leaning in our clients are leaning very much to Amazon I think that voice activation is, it's still in the early stages, but being able to have voice activation with Alexa to order online, I think is huge. Our clients are testing it. I think search is an area that we've been leaning into more and more, but Amazon search should be as robust a practice for us um, as, you know, one day as Google within the retail category. It doesn't make sense for everything. But but the search is really important. Audio is really, really important. I also think that 
I think they're innovative, right? So I think when you look at what they're doing with Amazon, the Prime Video, what they're doing, um, there, there was an example that they gave us of they showed they had the biggest box that they've ever made in LA. Have you seen this yes. with the dinos- with the yes. T Rex in it Inside for the opening it. of Jurassic mm-hmm. World? Like that's awesome, right? And I know that that's a that's a one off, but sure. our clients are using mm-hmm. what's in boxes. What does the outside of boxes look like? So it's a whole ecosystem that our clients are looking to us to lead. Let's talk about consultancies. Consultancies entering kind of media has been a story people sort of started wondering about a few years ago. Um, do you feel like it's happening? Consultancies making a big splash in media buying, especially as they've done kind of with creative and kind of other services before that. Um, yeah. This feels like the year that people are at least talking about it. Yeah. No, I, th- I definitely think that the threat of that happening is something that we do talk about. I haven't seen it come to fruition yet, but there is concern if we're giving consultancies all of our pricing and then they start a media buying unit, it doesn't seem like a fair business practice. Is that something that clients kind of think about more? or at least are aware of at all? I think they're absolutely aware of it. However, they are still engaging those same consultancies who, when they are the auditor of a pitch or they're running a pitch and they're gathering their pricing templates from various agencies, and then they're able to use, and even though they say they're not using that information to potentially start a media practice, it, it is a concern. It is a concern. Um, before I let you go, what's the most challenging part of your job? So what's most, what's most challenging to our team at the center, because we do have a, a team at the center, it's a small group of us, and what we look to do is make sure that we're activating properly across multi-channel, uh, across multi-platform channels, across programmatically, and it's, it's tough to navigate. What should we continue to be buying on an IO brand basis? What should we be activating programmatically? Um, what, what is still happening often with teams is if a particular inventory source may not be activating through a DSP and they, and they go in and sell to client teams, like it's valuable, valuable inventory, and we just write them on IO, and they go off on their own with a lot of the scrutiny that we perform every day for our clients, I do worry about what does that inventory look like? Mm-hmm. What margins are they taking? What places are they going in order to achieve those high margins? And what's the most exciting part of your job? Most exciting part is that every day, every day there's something new. There's a new partner. There's a new technology. I think video is getting just increasingly strong. You know, we did something for one of our clients um, using a, a home cleaning tool, which sounds maybe not exciting, but I love home cleaning tools. And instead of just doing a social 15-second or 30-second activation, um, we built a branded content using a, a company that does a specialty with social media branded content um, using this household cleaning item. I'm just not saying what it is because I don't know if, if my client, if I have permission to talk about it. Um, and the results were phenomenal. So there is still, like, there is the beauty of social, right? But and there is still innovation. There's absolutely still innovation. And we do tend to get mired down in what's inventory quality, what's brand safety. But it, is a, it, it can be a beautiful medium to activate mm-hmm. in terms of the creative messaging, in terms of being innovative, in terms of producing something that people want to see, that people want to share. Absolutely. Great. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Thank you. It's fun to be here. That's Susan Schaefer, Chief Digital Investment Officer at WPP's Group M. Our producer is Gianna Capadona. If you like the show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review and rate the show. I'm Trine Patrick, and we'll see you next week.